Good morning. We'll try that again because it's you Sunday. Good morning. Ah, I love it. Okay, I want to quickly welcome you here this morning. Uh, thanks, Josh. Thanks, team, for uh, leading us. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is John. Uh, I have the great privilege of, uh, of being a pastor here, but not just the pastor. I'm the youth pastor here at the church. And this morning, we're excited to be hosting Youth Sunday, uh, which is really an opportunity that we have as a youth group to do a few things. Uh, the first is we want to uh, share with you a little bit of what God's doing in the life of our youth ministry, how he's using it to help lead youth to be authentic followers of Jesus. And uh, we see glimpses of that this morning as our students lead us in worship, uh, serve as ushers and greeters. Uh, later on, they'll share some testimonies and also be baptized. And, and these are all amazing things and amazing things that God's doing. Uh, the other thing that we want to do, as Josh alluded to, is that we want to be a place uh, that says a huge thank you for being a church uh, that loves and for years has, has loved and deeply invested into the lives of students. Uh, me being one of them as a middle school, high school student here at Central. Uh, that was a long time ago, but um, for a long time, you guys have been loving us. And so whether that's through uh, weekly programming or staffing uh, to really being proactive in the partnerships that we have uh, with uh, things like the Ed Center, Cyrus Center, and Youth Unlimited, uh, these partnerships are invaluable. And I'm just going to say that they are invaluable. Your support of youth ministry is so crucial because 85% of all people who accept Jesus will do so before the age of 18. And that's why youth ministry matters. Uh, we so long for students to know Jesus. And so thank you uh, from the bottom of our hearts for just being known in our community as that place that loves, loves students. So, so let's, uh, let's quickly pray. Let's thank God for his faithfulness. And then we want to jump into our text this morning. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this morning, for stories of faith, for evidences of your grace as we see students serve in this place, knowing, Lord, that you have uh, been working like in huge ways in their hearts, uh, and that you have used this thing called youth group uh, to draw students closer to you. And so, Lord, this morning, uh, I want to just stand up here. I want to give you thanks for how you're working and the fact that you continue to work in the lives of students. And so this morning, we simply want to proclaim how great you are. We want to tell of, of the wonderful things that you have done. And uh, as we spend time in your word, Lord, would you open our hearts and our ears and our minds to what you have to say to us uh, this morning. We pray this in your great and awesome name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up to Luke 15, verses 1 to 7. Uh, if you don't own a Bible and you want one, there's some in the foyer. We'd love for you to take one home. Um, and, uh, and, and the words will be on the screen as well. But let's, uh, let's read our text this morning. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and you lose one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and he calls his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Well, this morning, I want to spend some time talking about lost things being found. 
You see, every single one of us at one point or another in our lives has lost something that is valuable to us. It could be that wedding ring that slipped off while gardening, a wallet with all of your identification, a cell phone, a camera, maybe a set of keys, or depending on who you are, maybe you've misplaced one of your own children before. And so I can't be the only one that's lost one of my kids. I asked Chris actually before, I said, Pastor Chris, people are mocking me. Have you ever lost your kids before? And he goes, I think so. Um, all right. So I'm here to confess that I once lost my little Liliana, who is right there. Hi, Lily. Not Ken. Behind Ken. Hi, Lily. And so here's the story. 2013 was a crazy year for Heather and I. Uh, September 2013, we adopted four kids. And to be honest, for the first little bit, uh, I felt especially completely like overwhelmed with the thought that I had to care for four kids. And so when we uh, wanted to go out or, or do something, we would always go as a whole family because it wasn't fair, you know, for Heather to take all four and me just to sit at home. And, and, and so, you know, four hands, adult hands for four kids, like I'm not a mathematician, but that adds up. And so we would just, we would go places together. But right around Christmas time, Heather comes up to me and she says, hey, John, uh, you have to go Christmas shopping for me. And I'm like, uh-huh. She goes, you need to take all four kids to the mall. And I go, uh-huh. Yeah, I know where you're going with this. And so I'm trying to process it in my head. Me going to the mall, taking four rowdy kids, all underneath the age of seven, to the mall at Christmas time. This is the foretaste of hell, okay? <laughs> And so I, I, I'm sitting there and I'm like trying to coach myself like, I can do this, I can do this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? <laughs> and so I load the kids up into the truck, I drive to the mall and it is chaos. And so I do what any parent does at Christmas time when you're at the mall with four rowdy kids. I yell at them, right? <laughs> Keep up, like don't get lost, hold your sibling hands, stop touching that, do you have money to buy that? Like I, I'm, I'm doing the whole parenting thing. And so after some time shopping and, and going store to store and picking up the presents that we needed, uh, we, we headed back to the truck. I buckled the kids in and we start driving away. And, and about a minute or two down the road, all of a sudden I hear from the back seat, uh, new dad. And for the first little bit, our, our kids called us new dad, new mom. And so it was new dad. I'm like, uh -huh. hey, buddy, what's going on? He goes, you don't have Lily. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have Liliana. Right? And so I, I, I turn the car around. Um, I pull into a parking spot. I hop out of the car. I run for the first time in a long time into the chaos of a crowded mall looking for literally the tiniest two-year-old girl that I have ever known. Okay? And so I do what any parent would do in this situation. I, I lose it. I start yelling and asking people if they've seen my daughter. I've lost her! Panic overcomes me. One of the moms standing there looks at me and is just utterly disgusted at me. And she says with a snarky attitude, well, maybe you shouldn't have lost her. And I'm like, I know that. Like, I'm in the mall. I know she's lost. I should have lost her. That's against me, right? And then I looked at her and I'm like, you know what? My daughter is far cuter than your daughter, so shut up. All right? <laughs> So all I can think about is finding this precious girl. 
And I'm wondering what's, what's going to happen to her. Like, do I need to send out an Amber Alert? And then my mind jumps to, like, what is Heather going to think when she sees Liliana's picture on a milk box? Like, this is not going to be the most enjoyable conversation. Like, hey, Heather, remember the time that we had four kids? Well, we have three. Thank you very much. Right? Here, here it is. I can take, like, 18 people to Reynosa, Mexico, but I can't even bring my kids home from the mall. Okay? I'm irresponsible. And so I do the next best thing that I can think of in this situation. I haven't found her. I, I run to the help desk. I start explaining the situation. I've lost my daughter. And so they ask me, well, what does she look like? And, and I, I pull up my phone. I'm like, oh, well, how about I show you? Except for I'm like on the cusp of millennialism. So it's just selfie after selfie after selfie of me just looking like this, right? That's what I do. And so I start demanding, how about you page my daughter? Because maybe you can get a hold of her attention. Like, oh, that probably doesn't work well. Like, okay, we'll try it. Hey, Liliana, your irresponsible dad is standing here making a scene. Can you please come to the help desk and take him home, Lily? Take him home. Okay? When all of a sudden, from the corner of my eye, I see my little girl. And for the second time in a long time, I run over to her. I shout, I found her. I found my daughter. She's not lost anymore. I, I, I start celebrating and I jump with joy with random strangers. Like I just want some horrible scavenger hunt that had legal consequences, right? <laughs> and I look at my daughter and I go to pick her up, but I can't because her, her hand is actually stuck in, in the candy dispenser like a monkey holding a banana in a jar. So now it's like, let go of the, let go of the candy lily because people are watching, okay? You see, when something that is valuable to you gets lost, uh, you will always go to a great measure of effort to find what's misplaced. And you will naturally celebrate when it's found. And this morning, our text in Luke 15 reminds us that very same thing. The lost matter to Jesus. And God will always relentlessly pursue those who are wandering and are lost in their sin, and he celebrates when they return to the shepherd. You see, God celebrates salvation, and we are invited into that this morning. So why don't we start by walking through our text together? Our passage starts off by setting up this really beautiful scene for us. Jesus is doing what he does best. He's hanging out with people. He's eating with them. He's teaching them and talking about God and his kingdom. And he's, he's calling people back into, into a relationship with God through repentance. And what we're told about the audience is that there were two very distinct classes of people who were drawing near to Jesus at this time. On one side, you had the tax collectors and the sinners. And on the other side, you had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These were two very different people with two very different moral and spiritual standings. And, and what we're told is that the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the law, were almost dumbfounded and angry at the fact that Jesus, a Jew, a teacher of the law, would be associating with these people. And so we automatically have to start by asking the question, well, why? Why did the religious leaders see this as being such a problem? You see, if you don't know anything about the Bible, you need to know that, that things were different back in, in Jesus' time. If you were Jewish and religious and obedient, you wouldn't associate with tax collectors and sinners because you were called to the strict adherences to the law of God, to tradition and to the teaching of the rabbis. 
The religious leaders in particular avoided those who they deemed as sinners because they had this, this squeaky clean image to maintain. And, uh, and, and they were more concerned about their own personal holiness over the fact that, that in this moment, something beautiful is happening. Jesus is sitting with sinners, engaging them in spiritual conversation. And for them, right, for the religious leaders to sit and to eat with a sinner would deem the religious elite unclean. It would cut them off from their people and from their God, and in the process, they would lose respect and authority. And so at great cost, the religious leaders uh, would separate themselves from anything or anyone who was unclean. But this is where we find Jesus. Jesus is eating with the tax collectors who were viewed as some of the worst people in society because they were traitors to their nation. They worked for the Romans. They dealt with the Gentiles and were known for skimming off the top and taking the Jews' money. No one loves the tax man. And then you have the sinners who were all the other people of, of bad reputation, people who, who did not even try to live in accordance with the standards established by the word of God or by the rabbis. They did what they wanted, when they wanted, and they didn't care what people thought. This was a group of people who the religious leaders thought and said that there could be no forgiveness or restoration. These people were the worst of the worst, and they were too far gone. But there was something about this Jesus. There was this contrast, this, this difference between the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus' attitude towards the lost. So as Jesus is eating with these sinners, uh, the lost actually regard Jesus as their friend. And the religious thought Jesus was crazy. And so the Pharisees and the scribes in this moment show the, the reflection of a hardened, self-righteous heart. And they say, why does this man receive sinners and eats, eats with them? And so why did Jesus do this? Why is it that, that through the gospel, uh, you will uh, read encounter after encounter after encounter of Jesus uh, associating with sinners and tax collectors and, and saying things like, hey, bring me to your house and let's eat. In Matthew 2, verse 16 to 17, um, we, we read the story of Levi. Levi's a tax collector. He, he's called by Jesus. And, and, uh, and, and we're given just this glimpse into Jesus' heart and his ministry uh, and we're told the reasons why Jesus would actually break these cultural and religious uh, boundaries uh, of the day. And it says this in Matthew 2.16, when the, the teachers of the law who were uh, Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, and they asked his disciples, uh, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's the same conversation that they're having in Luke 15. And on hearing this, Jesus turns to them, and he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. And so I have not come to call the righteous. I have come to call sinners. So the first thing we learn in our passage this morning is that Jesus' mission is to save the lost. Jesus wanting to help the religious leaders grasp and understand who he was and the reason why he would eat with sinners. Ask the, 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 the spiritual leaders of the day this, this rhetorical question. He says, well, what, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? You see, the religious leaders would have known that that's what a shepherd does. That's the role of a shepherd, is to watch over his sheep. 
And in a country like Palestine, uh, sheep desperately needed a shepherd because along every path, there was danger. A shepherd's job was to take care of the needs of the sheep. It was the job that required uh, a lot of work. It was onerous and burdensome because the shepherd didn't just have this this nice nine-acre piece of fenced property as a hobby farm in Greendale, okay? They had to lead their sheep into the open. And the reason why being a shepherd was so onerous was because sheep, although are called God's creatures, they're also known for something else. They're known for not being the smartest animals in the world. And so the shepherd's job was to lead the flock from the fold every day, which is like a big playpen for sheep. He would lead them into the pasture for grazing. The sheep, you know, being not being smart enough, can't get there themselves, and, and so the shepherd leads them. And when the sheep got tired of grazing on grass and their bellies were full, they would want something to drink. And because they weren't smart enough to find that themselves, right, the shepherd's job was to make sure that they got to the water, to make sure that they didn't wander the opposite way from the quiet waters. And so the shepherd's role was to lead the sheep to the water. When the sheep got tired and wanted to bed down, they, by their very nature, did not like lie down in green pastures. Uh, they would bed down in dangerous places where there was animals and thieves, and, and they would attack and, and kill the sheep. And so the shepherd's job was to lead the sheep to a safe place. So now imagine you not only have one sheep that acts this way, you have a hundred sheep, right? This is called youth ministry. And so a shepherd is always looking out for its sheep and counting them, calling them by name, okay? One sheep, two sheep, three sheep, awesome, I have my hundred sheep. The role of the shepherd was to ensure the safety and the well-being of each and every sheep. And so if the sheep gets lost, the shepherd wouldn't just look at his 99 and go, well, I've got my 99, so that's good enough for me. I can leave the one by itself. He wouldn't leave it to its own demise. He couldn't be happy with that. And so what does he do? He pursues it. He goes after it. And I have to be honest with you and say that once I lost my cat, but I didn't care because it was a cat, okay? I left it outside. But at the end of the day, a shepherd's job was to lead all the sheep back to the fold. And so when this is your job and this is your livelihood, and more importantly, when you have this deep love for your sheep, you chase after them. You find them just as I chased after my daughter in the mall and maybe truthfully my cat for about a minute and a half and then I was like, whatever, I'm done with you, okay? You would make sure that your sheep are with the flock. And after you brought them to the fold, right, the big playpen for sheep, the shepherd would stand guard over them into the dark hours of the night because you had to protect your sheep from the wild beasts and from the prowling thieves And so in this parable, Jesus is shouting at the religious leaders, and he's saying, my mission is to find the lost. Because there will always be two types of people in this world. Just as there was two people drawing near to Jesus, there will be the righteous who are, let's for the benefit of the doubt, say, devote people who have no big, obvious, open sins to repent of, right? In Luke 1, verse 6, we're we're told that Zachariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the law. They recognized they needed a Savior, okay? 
And what Jesus is saying, he's saying there's a lot of righteous people who are obeying God already. They've been saved, and that is incredible. They're part of the flock. But you also have those who are walking deep in the muck and the mire as they walk with an unrepentant heart, as they're stuck in their sins. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the shepherd knows the 99 are safe. He knows that the 99 are saved. He knows that the 99 have salvation. But as the shepherd looking at, sees his 99, he's, it's not good enough for him. He can't just leave the one lost sheep alone because if he did, it would cost the life of the sheep. It would be a certain death sentence to leave it alone. Think about all the things that could go wrong, folks. It doesn't eat properly. It doesn't drink properly. It, it beds down in the dangerous places, right? It gets attacked by some like crazy wild animal or it becomes a lamb shank dinner. Like, like there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And if you as a shepherd didn't care for your sheep, you would lose your sheep forever. And it would mean that you're a terrible shepherd. So if there is righteous people, 99 people who are saved and safe, then shouldn't Jesus, the great shepherd, like sit with people? So who are, who are the lost sheep? You see, the Bible tells this grand narrative story of God and men. The story starts off by telling us that before there was anything, there was God. God created everything we see, and he created us in his image. He created us man and woman, and he declared that his creation was not good, but it was very good. There was nothing wrong with it. Okay, there was no brokenness, there was no heartache, there was no death, there was no jealousy or slander or war, there was no broken families or broken homes, no addiction, right? God's creation was perfect. But because God is a good God, he creates us so that we can have the most intimate of relationships with him. He wants to be our God and wants us to be his people, but because God is God, uh, we are, um, he, he set up uh, a rule for us to follow. He established one rule of order to follow. He says, obey me. Listen to me. Remember that I'm God and you are my creation, right? What God has to do is he has to establish his authority to help ensure that his creation would remember their appropriate place in the relationship. But because sheep aren't smart, what do they do? They walk away. They walk away from all that is good. Genesis 3 tells us that Adam and Eve wandered away from God and his law. They disregarded his rule and his reign. They chose to do the opposite and go the opposite way of where God commanded them to go. And this is called sin. John Piper would say this. He says, what is sin? It is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, 
The beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. That's what sin is. And what Scripture tells us is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It wasn't just Adam and Eve, uh, but it was passed down to us like a bad genetic gene. We, plural, you, me, us, are like sheep who have all gone astray. We have turned and left God's path to follow our own. We've lied, we've cheated, we've stolen, we've coveted, we've lusted. We're prone to drunkenness, engaged in immoral lifestyle. We get angry, we slander. The list goes on and on and on and on. And regardless of whether we like it, the Bible teaches us that there is a consequence associated with our wandering. Greg Gilbert, in his book, What is the Gospel?, tells us what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. The consequences of Adam and Eve and their sin was disastrous for them. Their descendants and the rest of creation, they were cast out of the paradise of the garden. No longer would the earth willingly and joyfully present its fruits and its treasures to them. They would have to work hard and painfully to get them. Even worse, God executed the promised sentence of death upon them. They didn't die physically right away. Of course, their bodies continued to live, their lungs breathing, their hearts beating, their limbs moving. But the spiritual life, the spiritual life, the one that matters the most ended immediately. Their fellowship with God was broken. Their hearts shriveled. Their minds filled with selfish thoughts. Their eyes darkened to the beauty of God. Their souls became dry and withered, utterly void of the spiritual life that God gave them in the beginning when everything was good. It's kind of like what happens to the sheep who doesn't know where the good food is or the good water is or the rest in the patch, pasture is. It, it only leads to an empty life that leads to death because we're separated from the shepherd who leads us and loves us, provides for us, protects us. And the fact is, is that your iniquity is your sin. The stuff you struggle with the stuff that trips you up, the stuff that keeps just appearing in your life separates you from God. The wages of your sin becomes death. And that's the consequence. And so that feeling of turmoil in your soul is just the result of something bigger. And regardless of what you try to do on your own, there will never be enough of whatever your sin is to satisfy you. There will be never enough of your sin to quench your thirst or fill your hunger. No amount of good works will do because all that we're doing in those things is actually looking away from the true remedy. We're grazing in a barren land. We're drinking poison water. And we think, you know what? This will help me. When we were actually meant to be with a shepherd who guides us to the paths of righteousness, to the green pastures and the quiet waters. And so this leads us to our second point this morning. We as lost sheep need a good shepherd. 
This morning, there are two types of people in this room, just as there was two types of people uh, drawing near to Jesus. There are some of you who have recognized your need and you have responded to Jesus in faith and repentance. Faith is the complete trust in Jesus. You believe that he is your great deliverer. He be- you believe he is your strong defender and you've responded in repentance, which is the act of turning away from your sin because you have such sincere regret of it. But what I also recognize is that for some of us here, we have been living in our sins for far too long. We've tried nothing to change it. Maybe we've minimized it or made it to be smaller than it actually is, but we, we, we still have it. And just as it's detrimental for a sheep to not have a shepherd, it's also detrimental for you to not have a shepherd. Jesus, as he sits with the sinners and the tax collectors, knows the consequences of an unchanged heart, and that's what drives him to establish a relationship and to have a meal with them, to speak truth into their lives. He knows that those that are sitting with him need a good shepherd. And so Jesus challenges the religious leaders, and he says, wouldn't you do something if you knew your sheep was lost? Wouldn't you go after the lost sheep until you found? Because that's, that's what God does. In Ezekiel 34, verse 10, we read God's heart for the lost. And I, uh, this is what this verse says. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As the shepherd looks after his scattered flock uh, when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they've scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land, and I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel in the ravines and in all the settlements of the land. It ends with this. I will search for the lost And I will bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I don't know about you, but I I love this verse. Because Ezekiel 34 foretells of a Messiah who would, like a true shepherd, come to save his people. And although the religious leaders don't grasp it or understand it, this is the true reason why Jesus is eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, because God has looked down on them, has seen his sheep scatter on the day of clouds and darkness. He sees them in their struggle, in their pain, but yet he still longs for them. He still loves them. He's filled with compassion for them. And I believe that Jesus is trying to get the religious leaders to recognize that Jesus was the good shepherd who came to care for the sheep. John 10 verse 11 tells us, this is what Jesus says. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus continues and he says, I am the good shepherd. And the way that you're going to know that I'm the good shepherd is that I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. I want you for a moment to think about the pain and the hardship and the sacrifice it would take for a shepherd to go searching for a wandering lost sheep. The shepherd would experience pain. 
exhaustion. They would face wild animals and thieves. They would walk on dangerous paths. And regardless of the cost, they would do whatever it was to bring the sheep home. Even if it cost them their life, they would search after the sheep. It would be worth it. And that's what Jesus does as he lays down his life for a sheep. He says, I'm going to go do these things because I so love you and care for you and want you to know the shepherd. See, for those of you this morning who are living in your sin and you recognize that something is wrong, Maybe it's time that you acknowledge for the first time that you actually need someone, that you can't do it yourself. You can't be good enough, right? That that you need to be rescued and freed from your sin. Here's the thing, folks. God sees you in it. He reassures you you're not alone in it, and he's, he's shown you a way to be made right with him. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are, no matter your sin, no matter how bad you think it is. For everyone has sinned, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. And he did that through Jesus who freed us from the penalty of our sin. Jesus, the great shepherd, was a sacrifice for your sins. And that's what Jesus did for the sheep. He died on the cross so that you could be rescued, saved from it, spared from its consequences, and brought back into a relationship with God the Father. What Jesus is teaching us is that the good shepherd always goes after sheep. And when he asked the religious leaders the rhetorical question, it didn't have to be answered. You knew that that's what the shepherds did, and that's what Jesus did. He gave life to a sheep. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And my question for you in your sins is this. Do you enjoy wandering alone? Do you enjoy it? Or do you want a shepherd to come your way For someone to reach out and to joyfully put you on his shoulders and carries you and brings you back to the flock to give you life because that's what the good shepherd does. He gives life. And this morning, he he wants us to turn to him in faith and repentance That if we declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved, period. Do you want it? Because if so, you need to respond. The the last thing that that this does is, is it should lead to celebration. When lost things are found, it causes us to joy and, and that's, uh, causes us to rejoice. And that's the last thing that I want to talk about for a moment because we have some, some cool things that we want to move into uh, to end our service. But our last point is this, the celebration of the shepherd. Our text ends by saying, and when he finds the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you the same way that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Here's what our text is saying. We need 
to celebrate the heart transformation that happens in people's lives as they are lost but then found. Finding the lost sheep and bringing them home always results in a celebration of the shepherd. Like, what did he do? Right? He, he went to his neighbors. He went to his friends. He, he got, has the sheep joyfully over his shoulders, and he says, rejoice with me. Party with me. Come celebrate with me because the sheep that was once dead is now found. This is the same response that the father has when his son comes back. He throws a lavish party. And likewise, this morning, we're told to throw a party. Salvation of sinners always results in a celebration. And this morning, heaven celebrates the lost being found. The good shepherd celebrates the lost being found. And we're invited into that celebration to rejoice at the salvation of the lost. Heaven and earth should explode with the songs of rejoicing. We celebrate because life has been found. To rejoice is to feel great and, and delight in God. And as you know, this morning is Youth Sunday, and, and, and what I said at the very beginning of our, our sermon was, was that we as a ministry just want to celebrate together what God has been doing. And we want to share it with you. And we want to celebrate what God's doing. And we want to celebrate through things like testimonies and baptisms, and we want to be in awe of God as he's rescued and given life to students. This year has been by far one of my favorite years at Central Youth. I've been here finishing seven years, going into my eighth. And, and it's amazing to just sit back and to celebrate what God is doing in the lives of students. This year, some of my favorite things are this. This year, a foreign exchange student came to youth group one night. He was from Japan. Didn't speak English. And as he was sitting on the sidelines that one night, unable to speak English, unable of, like just unaware of what's going on, a few of our leaders engaged him with a Google translator, started sharing the gospel with him. And the students start sharing about his brokenness and his heartache. He talked about the hopelessness that he felt. And we said, here's Jesus, the good shepherd. This student responded over Google Translator and prayed a prayer to ask Jesus into his heart. Two days later, he went back to Japan. We scrambled to find him a Japanese Bible. We found it and we gave it to him and we encouraged him to now go share that hope with his family. This past Christmas, we hosted the biggest youth event that I think we've ever had as a church. Nine students accepted Jesus into their heart. Ten others recommitted their lives to Christ. It should be a cause to celebrate. This spring, two students from the Ed Center who started attending our youth group because we developed a relationship with them by feeding them breakfast. And we know that God's doing something in their hearts because they keep coming back. And so that should cause us to celebrate because God's doing something. He's looking for the lost. One of my favorite things that God has been doing is in the district with Dan Sluice. If you don't know what the district is, it's a partnership between Central Community Church and Harrison Gospel Chapel, where every Sunday night, 25 to 30 students come out, 
80 to 85% of these students are unchurched kids, and they're hearing about Jesus, and slowly we're starting to see hearts transformed and changed as they accept Jesus as their Savior. Folks, we should be cheering. We should be ecstatic. God is working and moving in this church, and it causes us to rejoice because God is good. Amen? Folks, we have a cause to celebrate. Shepherd's finding the lost, and maybe this morning he's found you. And if he has, I encourage you to come talk to me, come talk to some of our prayer partners. Like, let's, let's help you know the shepherd. I can't think of anything else better to do ending a sermon than to pray and then look at some stories of faith and move into baptism. So let's pray. Jesus, Thank you for going after the lost. Thank you for going after me. Thank you for going after every person that's saved, Lord, and we know that there are so many more that need to know you, and so we ask, Lord, with favor that you would move in their hearts and you would find them. God, that they would know that you're a good shepherd who loves them unconditionally. That even though they wander and are astray, Lord, you are searching for them and calling them by name because you love them. Lord, would that cause us to celebrate because you're at work, Lord. Thank you, God, for how you've worked in our youth group, how you're saving kids, Lord. How we, we just stand in awe and we long to celebrate with you, Jesus. We pray this in your great and awesome name. And the church said, amen.